The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, you're listening to The Views Room, brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba, and I'm joined today by my colleague, Anna Shemansky. Hello, Anna. Hello. Over the holiday break, the ex-Renault CEO, Carlos Ghosn, made a daring escape from Japanese authorities and landed in Lebanon. We will have the latest on what is going on there with our colleague dialing in from our London newsroom. And then later in the program, we're going to keep on the auto theme with Pete Sweeney and Robin Mack, who are going to take us through China's automaker Geely, which is trying to buy Aston Martin. So joining us uh, is Chris Thompson, who is dialing in from London. And Chris has been keeping close tabs on this wild, wild story involving Carlos Ghosn, uh, a man who was one of the most respected international CEOs, and now he's a daring escape artist. So, Chris, why don't you take us through the the latest um, the latest wrinkle in this story uh, with Carlos Ghosn and what he has done uh, this past week? Absolutely. Well, um, I mean, o- over the last seven days, he's he's held a press conference, having escaped from Japan, um, skipped his bail via. Um, a bullet train and then uh, allegedly putting himself inside a Yamaha music box to get on a private jet to Turkey and then another one to Lebanon. He arrived in Beirut. He held a bravura uh, press conference in, in, in so far as kind of getting a picture of the man who has been in solitary confinement, according to him, for about 130 days and under house arrest for substantially longer. He had this kind of well, let's just say he had a lot to get off his chest. Um, and he was condemning the Japanese justice system, of course, for kind of persecuting him. He claimed he was the victim and he had been forced to seek justice, as he put it, not escape justice. And then this week, um, he has doubled down on his PR implosion, really, by suing or threatening to sue his former employer, Renault, for performance shares and his pension payments, he believes, are due to him. How did this start? Well, I mean, it it started when he was arrested in uh, late 2018 by the Japanese authorities, suddenly, very unexpectedly, after touching down on his jet uh, in in, in Tokyo airport. He was arrested for uh, basically underreporting his income. Okay. Um, you know, which, and I mean, essentially defrauding the company and also shoveling a bunch of money uh, to companies owned by by friends and families, all allegations he strongly denies. So for, so for that, that means that the Japanese authorities put him in prison. That's that's right. They put him in prison. They, according to Gone, they interrogated him, uh, whether day or night, for up to eight hours at a time with no access to a lawyer. Uh, conjugal visits with his wife were not allowed, um, and it was very bleak indeed, considering the world in which he just come from. And is this something that's common in Japan in terms of white collar crime? I'm, I'm I'm not sure how common it is, but I do know that the Japanese justice system regards these types of infractions very much more harshly. Than, than perhaps the UK or US justice systems would. Um, a chief executive in the US or UK who was accused 
of underreporting their income probably wouldn't be put into solitary confinement for the better part of a year, um, even if even if public opinion says that they should be. Um, but it, it's for those reasons that Ghosn said he was forced into an impossible position and basically had to make a choice to flee. Uh, and now he's claiming that he might go to another jurisdiction, obviously not back to Japan, but to another jurisdiction, potentially France, where he's a citizen, um, in order to clear his name. And could you also maybe speak a little bit about like what's actually going on with the auto companies involved right now that with it, with this scandal? It's it's easy to forget. Yeah, I mean it's it's they're really so so this is uh, Renault, Nissan, and and to a lesser extent Mitsubishi. So two Japanese and a French automaker um, are in what's called basically an alliance. So basically in a merger, which Gone was the architect of. It's not a full-blown merger, but they cooperate, they build cars off common platforms, they share a lot of technology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, unfortunately, since Ghosn was arrested in late 2018, um, Nissan and Renault's performance, uh, respectively, has been fairly disastrous. I mean, that's in part just due to weakening sales globally, um, especially in Europe, but Nissan also has a much bigger presence in the U.S. market, um, where it hasn't been doing very well lately. Uh, at the same time, Renault has been busying um, with its a kind of program of degonification, which which involves firing or jettisoning all of Gone's acolytes. And so it finds itself today searching for a new CEO, having ousted uh, Thierry Bourlore, who was seen as a Gone protege not too long ago. So, and outside of the kind of potentially underreporting his income, were there any other issues that people had with his performance in this role? No, I mean his his performance was seen as is is very good. I mean the share price uh, tells you that both Renault and Nissan have substantial stakes in one another, and he was fated. As, as he reminded us at, at his uh, press conference in Beirut, uh, he was fated as, as you know one of the world's top businessmen, about whom something like twenty management books on by his count uh, had had been written. So no, it, it wasn't the performance, the operational performance, as such. But what he claims, and I think there's some credibility to this uh, accusation, that he wanted to orchestrate a full-blown merger, so a much deeper merger between Renault and Nissan. And that was something that the Japanese government was deeply uncomfortable with, something that more nationalist elements within Nissan were deeply uncomfortable with because um, Renault's interest in Nissan, it owns over 40%, uh, compared to Nissan's 15% interest in Renault, and, and, and also the fact that the French government is a large, is the biggest shareholder in Renault, um, gives the French government by proxy uh, influence over Nissan to one extent or another. So, so both the Japanese government and elements within Nissan were, were opposed to a full merger, and Ghosn claims this is one of the reasons why there was this plot to bring him down. Um, so can I ask you also, like, how, how is this playing out in each respective country? So, I mean, obviously the Japanese are not happy with Gohan. And, um, but how, how is it playing out in France? How is it playing out in Brazil, where he was raised? And then also in Lebanon, because he's Lebanese descent. I mean, th that's kind of the interesting part of the story, is that he seems to kind of be a, a man of the world with all these different passports. He, he is a kind of one one kind of polyglot symbol of yeah, and is and is he playing one country off another, and and kind of how how is that dynamic working working out? 
Yes, I don't think. I don't think he's. I think. I think Lebanon um, is probably the country where he would have found the warmest welcome, and it also has no extradition treaty with Japan, mm-hmm. though for both sentimental but also quite kind of naked political or calculated reasons. Lebanon was a kind of natural choice. Um, he already has family there to boot. Um, I think he just has a an apartment in Copacabana in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. But of course, he, he, he does he does speak Portuguese and, and is allegedly a citizen of that country as well. Um, so it, it's, he, he's been warmly received, certainly by the Lebanese government, who have made all sorts of cooing noises um, over his arrival. Um, In France, the reaction has been very much more muted. Um, Certainly given the French government is is such a large shareholder in Renault, they want the whole thing kind of over as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. And and one imagines that, um, you know, Renault definitely wants wants to get back to, to, to the business of sorting itself out, uh, reversing falling sales, concentrating on its um, uh, margins ever decreasing, sadly. And, and of course, it's it's due to announce a new CEO quite soon. Um, so I imagine his image was somewhat worsened by the fact that he's now suing Renault for pension payments. So how does this, I mean, what about the alliance itself? I mean, do you think that this is basically a thread that is going to unravel the entire thing? The thing is, I mean, that's that's what we've been hearing. One suspects um, elements in Japan in particular have been briefing certain journalists saying, oh, Nissan's going to walk away from the alliance. Most analysts don't think that's really feasible, given how deeply they're entwined. Trying to unscramble those eggs uh, would be a mammoth task, and ultimately one that is self-defeating, given they operate in an industry which is rapidly consolidating. I mean, Ghosn himself pointed this out. While he was still in charge of the alliance, he wanted to combine with uh, Fiat Chrysler. Um, That opportunity was spurned, um, partly due to his arrest, partly due to other political considerations from the French government. And, And Fiat Chrysler has since got into bed with Renault's great French rival, Peugeot. It's kind of funny with what you're just saying, because it, it, it almost seems like this situation perfectly encapsulates where we are right now with globalization, because you have this figure who has, you know, he's a, in theory, a citizen of all of these different countries. And very wealthy. Very, very wealthy. Yeah. He's overseen this, you know, as you this kind of combination between companies from all of these different countries. And in theory, we're at this moment where we think like, okay, maybe something will be changing. Maybe things will be breaking apart. But they're so intertwined that would make it that would be almost impossible if they did that that would essentially just hurt everyone it just seems like that's kind of exactly where we are in globalization right now where everyone thinks that oh we're going to get to this moment where things are going to break apart but that doesn't actually seem that realistic i i i i agree with that of course it you know the going thing has become something of a soap opera, but a very uncomfortable one for both Renault and Nissan. Um, particularly, as you point out, he's such a kind of symbol of, of, of the kind of Davos man. And, and he's compounded that symbol by essentially trying to order justice a la carte mm-hmm. because he didn't like it in Japan. So he has managed to smuggle himself out, one imagines, at enormous cost and go to Lebanon where he's treated much more leniently. So, Chris, before we let you go, I mean, where do you think this ends up for him? I mean, honestly, no one knows. Um, I mean, Renault and Nissan need have have to get their respective houses in order, like regardless of what happens with with Carlos Ghosn. I think um, 
my reading of his going to court, I mean, he won't personally go to court in Paris to try and sue Renault. He's just using his lawyers there. Um, he might go to Paris to, to try and clear his name if, if, if he thinks he will get a fair hearing, as he describes it, from the French justice system. But, but you know what? I think um, he, he's, his, his, his primary mission is just to kind of um, drum up as much sympathy as possible for his treatment by the Japanese authorities and, and, and kind of stay where he is. Okay. Well, Chris, thank you. I'm sure we'll have you back on the program to uh, discuss this again because it seems like it's the next episode of the soap opera (laughs) of Carlos Cohn. Exactly. Thanks, Chris. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. I'm Robin Mack here in Hong Kong, and I'm joined by my colleague Pete Sweeney. And today we're going to look at a pretty interesting deal involving James Bond preferred set of wheels, Aston Martin. So Reuters is reporting that China's Geely is in talks to buy a stake in the iconic 007 car maker. Pete, you've been following Geely for a while now. It's a really interesting company, very acquisitive. Why would it be interested in Aston Martin? Well, yeah, it's specifically interested in rescuing a lot of of troubled um, European brands, apparently. So it came in after the global financial crisis and picked up Volvo, made a success of that acquisition, actually, you know, despite a lot of doubts at the time that the Chinese could run a Swedish operation like Volvo. Um, Geely bought uh, London's iconic black cabs. Um, It picked up Lotus via an investment in Malaysia's Proton. and uh, and now it's flirting with, with Austin Martin. I mean, the founder Lee Shufu is an interesting guy. He's he's clearly he once referred to cars as like two sofas with four wheels, um, but he's been going after these 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 brands that are quite interesting, right? And and unfortunately, a lot of them are in trouble. Aston Martin has not done very well since its IPO. Its share price has fallen by like three quarters at least. Um, you know, it's warning that its profit last year is going to be half of what it was before. Um, you know, the company is is looking for for a rescue. So and this now is you've a got, now you've got Geely showing up. So this is like a, effectively a bailout of some sorts. Then, well, well, it would have to be some sort of injection of fresh capital to help turn around the company. You know, keeping in mind that there's nothing, there's no financials out there, there's no numbers. Um, Geely has not confirmed that it's going to buy anything at all. It could just buy like a tiny minority stake for the fun of it. Um, they might be interested in some of the technology. Li Shufu has a minor does, does a bunch of minority stakes as well. He took a minor already staking Daimler, right? Um, just kind of like popped up as a shareholder and started talking about collaboration electric cars. So the, the Volvo track record is quite interesting because presumably, you know, Geely, if they are able to turn around Aston Martin, then this would be great for, for the shareholders. Then. Could be. But I mean, like, look, it's Aston Martin. It's kind of a niche little sports car brand. It doesn't feed in really to anything else Geely is doing necessarily. I mean, they are looking at doing an electric sports car, but that progress has been slow on that front, I think. I mean, look, it's, it's Geely. Aston Martin sells a bunch of cars in China. China's a great sports car market. A lot of young buyers, a lot of rich kids picking up Ferraris and stuff. So Aston Martin, uh, you know, could do quite well there with a bit of Geely's help. Geely could use some of the, the technology that Aston Martin has to do some some uh, t- sharing or shared platforms with Lotus so they could both lift up. But, I mean, it's not necessarily that great of an idea. I mean, it's not the same. <laughs> the Chinese car market is not in the situation it was you know, back when Li Shufu decided to go for Volvo. Right. We've had some pretty grim it's been numbers just coming terrible. in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, what, you know, so margins are going down, like the, the whole market is in this correction. And, um, you know, Geely is in a fair amount of debt. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're doing okay. 
Um, but they got tight competition, um, both from private firms and from state-owned car giants. Um, you know, they still haven't really built a major export market. They've got this Lincoln Co. brand that they're developing with Volvo um, that is supposed to be their big export brand. That is still, you know, kind of a, a story in progress. And now he's going to have this kind of disaster in Aston Martin. Um, does he need, you know, the distraction of trying to pull these guys out of the gutter? I have my doubts. Okay. Thanks, Pete. We'll leave it at there then. All right. Thanks, Robin. That's our show for this week. I would like to thank our guests, Chris Thompson, Pete Sweeney, and Robin Mack. And hats off to our producers, Laura Bronner, Sharon Lamb, Freddie Joyner, and Andrew D'Antonio. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fix. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.